Oh, so question, how many of you got a really good Black Friday deal? Anybody? You got at least one? All right, good. Anybody get uh, way too much turkey? All right. How many of you got your decorations up, started to look like a tree, maybe some wreaths, something like that? Okay. Um, anybody uh, uh, like got a list put together of people you still need to shop for that you didn't get sorted out on Friday? Anybody? Yep. Still got some work to do there. Okay. Because we switched gears, right? I know some of you are like, I'm slowly switching gears. We'll get you one of those shirts that, you know, is green and whatever. We, teased some, we were teasing my brother-in-law last night. Uh, that he, he got a certain shirt for his Christmas pajamas because he's the Grinch of the family who's uh, not really into all the holiday yay. Um, I'm one of those who usually... Uh, gets real excited like this like when we turn this corner I'm like pumped and ready to go this year's a little weird and I'm still mm, trying to figure out how I feel about everything <laughs> but generally speaking I'm doing pretty good I'm excited about Christmas I love this time of year but as we joke about like who got the Black Friday deal who got this that and the other it's easy for us to remember and this is that time of year where we start to give that speech right that as we head into the Christmas season, we remember what the Christmas season is about because it's easy for us to lose sight of what everything is all about. We fix our eyes on the deal. We fix our eyes on the list. We fix our eyes on, okay, what date are we going where? We're trying to schedule things. Who's got all their organized schedules figured out yet? Everybody got all the family stuff sorted yet? I don't yet. There's still a couple of those where like, when are we going where? What are we doing here? I think most of it's close, but I think there's probably still some to be sorted out. And we get like caught up in the, as we call it, hustle and bustle. And it's easy for us to forget why we're here in the first place. And so we constantly come back to church on Sunday morning. And we talk about the Christmas story. We talk about all those things. And then at the same time this year, it's kind of weird because we're in the middle of this Core 52 thing. And spoiler alert, um, we picked when to start this, not based off where the Christmas story would land appropriately with everything else. We started this because of, I don't even know why, honestly, somebody else picked the start date. I came late, late to the party, but went, yeah, we can make that work. So, in the midst of all that, this is not like the normal Christmas messages. There's other stuff we're talking about. Now, it lines up pretty good, and I'm looking at it going, actually, this is going to be pretty fun. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens. I told the ladies that decorated, I said, you don't even realize, because this year at Christmas, if you look ahead, if you cheated and looked ahead in your chapters, on Christmas week, we're not talking about a birth, we're talking about atonement which is actually a cross. And I said, you didn't even realize what you were doing, but you decorated perfectly this year. Because we're talking about things kind of out of order, and it's easy to get caught up in all this stuff and to look at all these things and to expect certain things and to think, well, if we don't sing these songs or if we don't talk about these sermons, if we don't at some point discuss shepherds and mangers and, and all these kind of things and angels we, you know, singing on high and all this kind of stuff, like do we really have Christmas? If I didn't have the presence, did I really have Christmas? Because in our minds we have traditions, we have understandings, we have thoughts. And that's actually where we're at today. We're still actually doing this whole singing the sacred aspect of looking at the Psalms. That's kind of where we still are in this Core 52 thing. But today we're specifically looking at a psalm. Uh, it's actually one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Psalm 110. And this psalm starts off like this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is this messianic psalm that is used over and over again that points towards this coming Messiah. And this morning we're talking about the Messiah and this idea of something people have been looking forward to. We talked about this with the prophets just a few weeks ago and the lack of patience people had 
trying to find their own way, trying to choose their own path, trying to do things their own via their own methods. And, and missing the point, we've talked about it in the Psalms, like people trying to find happiness in other things and looking for fulfillment and joy and happiness in other areas. We talked about last week this shepherd that we need to lead us, that we are kind of prone to be the ones who wander off a cliff when we start to follow each other. We follow each other into doom and destruction, but when we fix our eyes on the shepherd, the good shepherd who will lead and guide us, though, we find straight paths that will lead us in the right direction. And here we have this other psalm that's kind of pointing toward this Messiah. And how does all this tie in? It ties in by this understanding that, again, we're going to find our happiness in God's presence. We are going to be prone to want to figure out how to do that on our own, not be patient enough to wait and to hear the good news and to look forward to the good news, that we're going to miss the mark, that we are all going to wander off on our own without that guidance, but ultimately where we're looking towards, we've said this the whole time, is towards this Messiah, that everything is pointing forward towards this Messiah. And here in Psalm 110, we have this Messiah who is the point. And it's so easy for people to miss the point, to fix their eyes on something else, to paint this other picture of what the Messiah should be, that it's really easy to miss the point or even yet miss the Messiah. And so even though this isn't the perfect, like, how we would normally do Christmas kind of series, I think God's got us in a really cool spot to have a cool conversation this morning. And so if you would, bow your heads with me for a word of prayer before we look a little further into the scripture. Father, I love you and I'm so grateful for your word. I'm thankful for... I'm thankful for just <laughs> the ability to talk at all. But Father, I pray that you would give us strength to get through today, both with voice and just little nonsense and crud that's still in, but also just, Father, I know that there's still a lot of us that are just carrying heavy weights, folks that are dealing with difficult circumstances, who are trying to support and encourage others who are struggling through so much, Father, those who have just had a busy, exhausting week, maybe some of us who got into it with family this week, and it just wasn't as much fun as we wished it would be. And Father, whatever the circumstances, I just pray that in this moment we would lay those at your feet and be able to fix our eyes on you and not to miss the point, not to miss the purpose, not get caught up in all the other peripherals that distract, but to fix our eyes on you, our Messiah, our Savior, and to help us see that you are who you say you are. Father, we love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So, in your reading this week, you're going to get a little more into this story, but I just didn't see a way for us to have this conversation today without talking about this. I try not to like just you know preach what Mark Moore is going to write in the book later this week. If you're keeping up with your reading, hopefully that's been encouraging and good, and, and those things. If not, uh, you know we'll talk about some uh, opportunities to just reset, you know, kind of catch up and just say, don't worry about it, don't stress about what you don't have done, just jump right back into what you do. Uh, where you can be and where you are. It's always a great week to start again, right? And so um, if you fall behind, that's all right. Pick back up and let's keep trucking along. But right here where we are, um, you know, in the chapter that you'll probably read tomorrow is, is this conversation about this chapter in this passage in Matthew chapter 22 where this verse in Psalm 110 gets used. And it's actually important because Jesus is the one who brings it up. And so I just kind of want to set the stage. We're going to talk about this briefly before we kind of unpack some other stuff. But the idea is here in this moment, Jesus has been doing different things. He's been teaching. And in the beginning of chapter 22, he actually shares this parable about a wedding banquet. And he talks about this, in, like different people being invited and people being dressed for the banquet or not dressed for the banquet, prepared for the banquet or not. You know, he's using this imagery 
And he's talking about those people who are there who are not dressed, who are not prepared, who are not ready to be invited into this wedding banquet, and how they were bound up and tossed out. And so, of course, these religious leaders are not really loving this uh, story, this parable. So all of a sudden, the Pharisees show up and they say, we're going to try to entangle him. We're going to try to ensnare him in a trick. And so they ask a question. It's a question you've heard me talk about quite a bit. It's that question of, should we pay taxes or not? Of course, Jesus gives a brilliant answer where he says, I know you want me to fall into this trap and make somebody mad, but the answer is, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, what bears his image. Give back to God what is God's, what bears his image. He delivers this perfect answer to their question. They're kind of grumbly because you know he's thwarted their efforts to get him wrapped up in this problem. So then the Sadducees show up. And if you don't know, the Sadducees are not real big believers in the resurrection. So Jesus, they throw out this question about the resurrection. And once again, Jesus just like perfectly deals with their question. And, and they, they kind of leave this picture stumbling and not being able to give a clear answer. And then the Pharisees say, okay, well, he's thwarted the Sadducees. So now we've got to come back at him again with another question. And so they come back once again with another question and say, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Maybe we'll get him tripped up in this one, make him make somebody mad. And he throw something out that's really part of the Shema, this understanding of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, heart, all your soul, all your mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself, right? And he, he paints this picture. Once again, they just don't have any response for the things he's saying. What he's laying out is just so well done. And then it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. He's kind of been getting bombarded with these questions. And so now he is going to throw one back at them. And that's where we pick up here late in chapter 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, if you remember, we know from the prophecies, from the different things we've discussed, from our conversations about David, that there was this covenant made with David that God would send someone from his line to sit on the throne forever, that this promised one is going to be from the line of David. Prophecy has told us this, right? So it makes sense that they're answering. It will be from the line of David, a son of David. How is it then, Jesus says to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and here we go, Here's our memory verse of the week. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David, being in the spirit, Jesus says, makes this statement where he says, the Lord, meaning like God, this imagery of this God speaking to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is this prophetic statement about a coming Messiah, this one who would come, who is sitting at the right hand of God waiting. But David uses the term Lord for both of them. Now, this is extremely significant because in Hebrew culture, if you are a son of any fashion, anywhere down the line in the lineage, anywhere down that track, you are not above the father. Okay? You are a son. So nowhere would a father reference their son as Lord. Okay? So he's saying, why would David, who was in the spirit call this Messiah, who is supposed to be his son, Lord, unless there's something significant about him. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So I couldn't like get into this conversation without this kind of moment where we understand that this passage in Psalm 110 
is this picture, this moment where David is helping us see that even though the Messiah is going to come from his line, the Messiah is going to be one born of someone in his lineage, even though he's going to come and be physically among us, there's going to be something about him that elevates him higher than David himself. Right? This Messiah is also got this divine essence to him. We talk about all the time in church, like not all the time, actually, we sometimes don't talk about it nearly enough, but this idea, this theological understanding that when Jesus comes, he is 100% fully human. And yet at the same time, 100% fully divine, God's son. And that makes our head hurt because we know that 100 plus 100 is 200 and 200% doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't mesh with our understanding of things, but Jesus comes in and does something that none of the rest of us can do. He is a Messiah who is fully God and fully human, who has dwelt among us. And the reality is is that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are presenting what they think are important questions. They're, they're focused on the things that are important. You need to be able to answer theological questions. Really, some of it's a trap. Like, But you need to be able to lead and guide us. So you tell us what's right. Is it good to pay taxes? Is the resurrection of our bodies important? Does that matter? What's the greatest of all the commandments? What should be most important to us following? If you're going to lead, if you're the Messiah, if you are all these things, if people are going to follow you and they think you're such a great teacher, you should be able to do all this stuff. And he provides perfect answers and responses but again, their eyes are fixed on something specific. There's another example, a little further, uh, or in a different spot, a different place in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 5 and 6, there's these kind of tug-of-war moments where we see this idea that Jesus is establishing himself as something more than just an earthly presence. That what he's doing in his ministry is causing a stir because what he's saying about himself is kind of scandalous. In John chapter 5, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He's just healed someone on the Sabbath in the beginning of John chapter 5, so this is following that text. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What Jesus is saying about himself, it seemed a little more questionable. Like Jesus didn't outright say, like, I'm the one that Psalm 110 is talking about, right? But he's saying that whoever Psalm 110 is talking about must be something more significant than just a person. Yes? Because why else would David call him Lord? They didn't have an answer. In fact, they stopped asking questions like, um, we can't keep up with this dude, Right? But right here, they're specifically mad because Jesus is calling God his Father in a way that shows intimacy, in a way that shows relationship, in a way that elevates Jesus to a place and a position where they're on the same level. There's these questions that have been thrown out throughout the years. People talk about, um, well, who was Jesus? Was he just some really good teacher? Was he some sort of prophet? We don't know that he was necessarily God's son, but who was he? And the reality is is there's, there's kind of... One of three options. He was some sort of legend, like we look at mythology and we look at other stories that probably weren't true stories, they're just made-up stories somebody told. Well, other history has validated that Jesus was a real person that walked on this earth, like history outside of our scripture and our text. We know Jesus was real. Other historians have documented Jesus' time on this earth. So we know he's real. He's not some legend or myth. At that point, we have to assume one of two things. 
Because some people like to say, Jesus was just a good teacher. Well, if Jesus was just a good teacher and he calls himself God's son in a way that elevates his position and puts him on the same level as God, something's not right there. Can you be a good teacher who teaches good things and still be a little bit crazy and delusional about who you are and where you sit? No. The reality is is that Jesus is either out of his mind and a lunatic or he's the Lord, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for because he says time and time again, not just here, but in other places throughout scripture, he helps us see and understand and teaches in such a way and says things in such a way that he says, I am the one you're waiting for. To the woman at the well. So in different moments throughout the passages, he kind of basically says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. If he's constantly saying that, and he's not of an elevated status, he is not divine in the same way he is human, then he's just crazy. Does that make sense? It just doesn't add up. But that's why we kind of sit here, and we're here in this room, because we believe Jesus is Lord. But it doesn't stop in John chapter 5. There's something else that happens here in John chapter 6 that, again, shows this picture of people whose eyes are focused on certain things. So they gathered them up and filled themselves baskets with... Uh, so, sorry, I should explain first. John chapter 6, he's just fed the 5,000. It's Passover time. His disciples are like, we should probably send them out to go get food so they can do stuff. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? Like, can you feed them? And they're like, man, if we had all this money, we still wouldn't even scratch the surface of being able to take care of these people. And he says, well, what do you have? They pull together some stuff, and of course he blesses it, breaks it, feeds 5,000 men that we know of. And in the midst of this moment, he feeds all these people and then collects 12 basketfuls of leftovers here, right? So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They see it, right? Their eyes are open, they see it. Mm, Hold on, not so fast. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He understood that they're getting excited. This is the one. He's going to come. We're excited. We think this, like, did you see what he did? I mean, who else could do something like that? He's obviously got to be important. This is the one we've been waiting for. Let's act. Why do we need to wait any longer? And again, they step outside of patience. They step outside of God's timing. They step outside of anything else. And they take off to go do what they think is right. We're going to get him, and we're going to force him to be king. Because that's what we've needed. This authoritarian figure, this king to sit on a throne, to rule, the one to lead and be everything we needed him to be. And so they go, but what does Jesus do? He knows they're coming for him. He knows they're going to try to make him king. And so he slips off quietly back into the mountains so that that can't happen because he knows that's not the way this is supposed to go down. He knows he is the Messiah. He knows that there's something special about him. He is ready to take on the mantle of what is special about him. But the problem is, is it's not what everybody else thinks. It's not what everybody else's eyes are focused on. Everybody else is seeing different things that are important. Their eyes are fixed on what they think is important. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are really caught up in the law. They're worried about the Sabbath being maintained. They're worried about all the instruction being followed the right way. They're worried about the power that's being taken away from them. If the temple isn't as important as it used to be, then what good are we? We lose our status and our position. 
all their eyes are fixed on different things. We need a king because then we can get out from underneath Rome's thumb. That would be so much better if we were outside of Roman rule. We need all these things. And it's just like this season, this moment. We get wrapped up in all these things we need, all these things we want the Messiah to be, all the things that we know God is supposed to be because we just think that seems right. That sounds right. These are religious leaders. People who have studied the scriptures and the prophecies, they know Psalm 110, inside and outside, backward and forward. But they still don't recognize the king who's in front of them. The king who meets all the prophecies. The king who sees all these other statements and all these other moments and fulfills them in the way that God intended as a suffering servant, as someone who came to give himself up. Not someone who came to sit on a throne, but someone who came to wash feet to die on a cross, to surrender himself, to be a Messiah and a leader of our hearts, not of our kingdoms. He's come to fulfill the role and the purpose that he knew was important. And yet their eyes are fixed on all these other things. And, you know, there's, there's this tendency we have, not just at Christmas time, to get caught up in all the things the season is not about, But there's also this tendency in us, and we've talked about this time and time again, to do all the things we knew were problematic, to try to find happiness in all the wrong places, to try to be impatient, not listening to God's promises and God's words of what are to come, but finding our own path and our own way and our own understanding and our own ways of doing things, not following the shepherd who is there offering his presence and that joy and happiness that comes with that presence and that guidance, that correction. We have a tendency to, again, look for what we think God should be, We define what we think God should be by what we understand it looks like. A church should look this way. A preacher should look this way. A service should look this way. God's people should look this way. If you do this, that, or the other, there's no way you could be a follower of God because you don't match the criteria. And we start checking off what's important. We let our eyes get fixed on what's right and what's wrong. We let our eyes get caught up in this idea, well, there's no way you could be a Christ follower because you follow this political party. You subscribe to this belief. You treat people this way. You, and we're always pointing fingers saying, well, there's no way you could follow God because you are that way. There's an author by the name of Anne Lamott, and she has this quote. It says, we know we've created God in our own image, when he hates all the same people we do. We can be sure we've created God in our own image when he hates all the same people we do. And that's kind of the way we walk through this world and we walk through life and we kind of, it's not just that God hates because we all go, well, God doesn't hate anybody. He hates their sin, not them. That's kind of a tricky tightrope to walk. Because for some people, what we call their sin is far more wrapped up in their identity and who they are and what they believe and the core of their identity and their belief than we like to think it is. And and it's hard for us to separate that out. It's hard for them to separate that out. And so we just get more tense and we actually just start to despise and dislike people. And it gets gets tricky and touchy and kind of messy. And the reality is, is that the people back then thought God cares about these values. Here's the commandments. And there's the people that are clearly breaking the commandments. Those tax collectors, those prostitutes, those sinners, they're the dirty scum that are unclean and impure and not worthy to be in the temple. And I can't stand Jesus because he's spending all of his time with them. He should be over here liking us and telling everybody how great we are. Because again, Jesus doesn't always match up with what we think he's supposed to be doing. And the people in the moment thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were trying to follow the law. They were holding on to God's word and saying, this is what we're supposed to do. 
but it was possible and clearly the truth that they had missed the point in some of that. They, their eyes were fixed on this detail or that detail or that section or this piece or those things. And they had a hard time wrestling with tough questions. And it was easier just to walk away and not ask any more questions when I didn't have an answer. They didn't lean in and say, Jesus, can you help us understand this? Because you clearly understand something we don't. And I'd like to know more. No, they're too scared to want to know more. Because if I don't have the right answer, if you disagree with me and you're right and I'm wrong, then what happens to the rest of my life, the rest of my perspective, the rest of my understanding? It all crumbles and falls apart. We're walking into a season where we say we need to fix our eyes on a baby in a manger. But why is the baby in the manger important? Because he's the Messiah. He's the promised king. There's this prophecy in Isaiah, right? We say over and over again during this time of year, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you see that language? A child born, physically here, but also Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The baby in the manger that's born is something special and different and significant, elevated higher than just some person who's going to rule, some God who is far off and removed and not having anything to do with us. There's so many different pictures and misunderstandings of what we can start to see and think about and hold on to and fix our eyes on about how to navigate, how to walk in this world, how to be in relationship with other people, how to, to do all these things. But it starts with getting our head straight about who God is, what the Messiah actually means. The Messiah actually means this. I think, I think there's this passage in Galatians that helps us sum this up a little bit. But when the fullness of time had come, you notice that Psalm 110 kind of language there? When the fullness of time had come, like sit at, my Lord said to my Lord, sit here until I put all your enemies under the, my footstool, right? There's this essence of God's timing being patient and waiting on the right time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Those who were trying to live under the law, who weren't succeeding, who weren't ever going to accomplish that. They're living under the pressure of the law and failing. He's going to redeem them and make them right. So they don't have to worry about, did you fulfill the law correctly? No, he's redeeming you. He's going to do the work in you. Redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I told you that Matthew chapter 22 started with this imagery of a banquet. This imagery of a wedding feast and the people that were invited to it. And we read that sometimes, and I think we read that like you have to have on the garments. You have to be prepared and ready to go into the feast. But you also have to take into consideration who who Jesus was talking to in that moment. He's talking to religious leaders who think they have on all the right garments. And we look at other banquet stories throughout Scripture. It's the guests who were invited to the wedding who don't bother to show up, who reject. We're going to talk about rejection next week. And they're the ones who rejected, and they kind of say, no, 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 go back out, and they're not going to come, they're not going to bother coming to the wedding feast, go find other people off the street. And he starts bringing other people into this wedding feast, 
And he starts inviting other people in, and everybody's appalled at who has been invited to the feast. And I think the problem is sometimes with this idea of Messiah is we want him to fit our criteria, our box, see the world as we see it, agree with us completely, be everything we wanted him to be. And we don't stop often enough and ask him, who are you actually? Who am I supposed to care for actually? Who am I supposed to love? What is the ultimate goal and purpose of why you're here? He's fulfilling this purpose and he's coming in and he's speaking to the lowliest of the low. And all of a sudden we're left with this question, <clears throat> of saying, who am I supposed to care about? Who am I supposed to love? What is Jesus supposed to be doing? Is he, is he here to fix my problems? Is he here to redeem me? Is he here to be my king? Is he here to agree with me? The reality is he is here to do the same thing for everyone, to bring them into adoption into his family as sons and daughters, as heirs to a kingdom. And the reality is, is that the people of that time really loved this kind of fixed culture where the Israelites were the Jews. Like, this is our culture. This is our people. The Samaritans are dirty. They intermarried with other groups and other civilizations, and they diluted who they were. And that's why they're kind of like this half-breed scum, and we don't like them. And yet here Jesus is loving Samaritans and elevating Samaritans in his story and sharing the good news to Samaritans. And the culture is going, what are you? They're despising prostitutes and bringing them out in the middle of the street and saying, we're going to stone this adulterous woman. Don't you think so? That's what Moses' law says. And he goes, that's fine. But the one of you who's without sin cast the first stone. And he flips everything on his head and says, you want to accuse her, you want to beat her down, but I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of an upside-down kingdom that's going to look different than what you thought it was going to look. You thought that it was all about the tree. You thought it was all about the presence. You thought it was all about this. You thought it was all about that. And I'm telling you, this is what it's all about. Me coming to redeem and restore my children who were lost. To provide hope to sheep who need a shepherd. To provide the fulfillment of promise to those who have been patiently waiting on the day when I would come back for them to restore relationship and presence into the life of people so they could find true happiness and fulfillment and peace and joy in relationship with their God. Because that's the only place they're ever going to truly find that. And through the sacred Psalms, we see this picture of what Jesus the Messiah is coming to do. He's coming to adopt us as sons and daughters, to make us His. And this is the reason we do what we do. No matter who you are, you were invited as a son and daughter to be adopted into this family. You were redeemed. No matter how much I like you or dislike you, you were someone my Savior, my Messiah, my King, my Lord, my Christ, my Jesus died for on that cross so that you might be invited in as a son and daughter and redeemed. No longer a slave, but an heir. The weight of this theological statement is huge. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Not only to save the world, but to invite the world in as family. Can you imagine Thursday afternoon this past week, just wandering through the streets and looking for any random stranger you can find and saying, hey, we're having Thanksgiving dinner, you all will come in? How many would be terrified, right? I don't know who I'm inviting into my house. But that's exactly what happened with us. <clears throat> we were invited to the table to share in the meal as sons and daughters who are undeserving. Just like that prodigal son, we have wasted and squandered and messed up and failed and said, we want other things. We don't want you. We're not patient enough to wait on you. 
We don't need a shepherd. We don't need that. We'll find happiness somewhere else. We don't need that. And yet he was standing there waiting the whole time for that hope who might change our mind and just come back and beg for some scraps. And there he is running down the road with his arms open, embracing, wrapping the cloak around, saying, kill the fattened calf, throw a party. What was once lost is now found. It's reason to celebrate. Because our Messiah is both God and both man. He understands what we go through, but he is powerful enough to walk us through it. He is everything we needed. He accomplishes the purpose. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. I'm excited about that conversation. I've been learning a lot of cool stuff. I'm just stoked to talk about atonement and who Jesus is and what he does for us and what this whole picture of a cross and a manger means for us. But he does that because he loves us and everything has been pointing to him. All of the prophecy, all of the Psalms were singing sacred songs because he is a sacred, set-apart, holy one we just can't wrap our head around because he is so good. And we have to stop making him into our image of who we think he should be and start falling at his feet and saying, I am a lost sheep wandering through this world looking for who knows what, and I need to see the beauty of who you are so that I can be fully fixed on knowing that I got my head on straight and I'm here and I know the reason for the season. Not just the, the cliche version of that, but I know the reason for everything I do in this life. I know the direction for everything I'm doing in my life. I can find that happiness and relationship with you because you are everything I've been looking for. If you would bow your heads with me. This morning, I, I encourage you to just bow your heads with me and just go before him and say, God, I want to make sure I fully appreciate and have shown thanksgiving this week for the most important gift I've ever received, being invited and adopted in as your son or your daughter. Just take a moment to praise and give thanks and offer thanksgiving to him for that gift. At the same time, this is one of those, years, those time of years where we reflect a lot on things and we wrestle with stuff. And I just encourage you to pray and say, God, who or what or how does my, how do my eyes need to be refocused on what is sacred and what is holy and what is good and what is of you? And how do I need my eyes pried away from the things that are not of you? Help refine me. Help me to cut out and eliminate the distractions, the voices, the shepherds that I'm following that are not your guidance and your leading? How do I find true delight and joy in your presence and make time for your presence? Like, What are the things I can be doing to truly make sure my eyes are fixed on you in this season? And not just think this would be a good idea, but actually take real practical steps to make space and room for my Savior. Father, I just pray as we fix our eyes on you this season, as we have opportunities to spend time with family or other members of our community or other people around us that, (laughs) Father, sometimes it's hard for us to love or easy to become frustrated with, I pray that you would help us to, in the midst of everything we're walking through, everything we're going through, everything we see, everything we do, not to get caught up in all the other distractions, not to get caught up in all the other things, not to be so anxious and worked up and heartbroken and angry and 
bitter and all of these things that we can't see the beauty of your Savior, of you as Savior. We can't see the beauty of you as our shepherd. We can't see the beauty of your timing and the perfect plan that you've been weaving and orchestrating all throughout human history. That we can't see the joy and hope that comes from your presence. So, Father, I pray that you would help us just to find space and time to fix our eyes on you as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, as that baby born in a major who is mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that we would come to know you fully. That we would come to follow you fully. That we would come to see and understand more clearly every day what it is you cared about. Not the things that we think you should care about, but the things you actually care about. Pray that you would soften our hearts more and more every day, that we would die to ourselves more and more every day, and every day pick up that cross and look more and more like you. It's in the precious name of Jesus I pray. Amen.